All right, so ready to enjoy the Word together, church? Let's worship the Lord through the study of His Word. I'll ask you to grab your Bible, if you would. Let's take a look at Ecclesiastes chapter 6 this morning in the Old Testament. If you could make your way there to Ecclesiastes and uh, reach into your bulletin, grab the little note page out as well. That will be of help along the way. If you need a Bible this morning, Charlie's in the back and be glad to just share a copy of God's Word. If you just put that hand up so we can get a Bible to you, that would be great. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And church family, I'm going to open with an illustration that for any West Coast, California, born and bred person, this illustration could be a little bit of a stretch, but if you grew up in the Midwest, this will be a slam dunk for you. How many of you have ever done a corn maze? You ever done? Yeah, okay, great. Got some hands up there. You're at least familiar with the concept, even if you've never actually done one, right? Each fall across the corn-growing states of America, in large, unharvested cornfields, you will find some amazingly elaborate corn mazes. Corn mazes like this one, shot from the air in Iowa, uh, just to give you an example, and, and, and the sense of scale here, if you look down in the right-hand corner, that's a building down in the bottom right-hand corner. That's a building, and the little specks are people. So this thing is, is absolutely huge. Corn mazes are a series of narrow, interconnecting paths that are cut into a cornfield. Lots of paths. Some go this way, some go that way. Every path ends up being ultimately a dead end except one. That's the idea. The goal is to get through the maze, find the right path, because again, there's only one way out of the maze. So you're constantly running into corn walls, uh, turning right, turning left, maybe sometimes turning around and retracing your steps and trying a different path to get out of the maze. And the designers of some of these elaborate corn mazes are very clever in the way that they lay them out. You'll think you're going down the right path, the one that will get you out. It feels like you're making progress. You're almost there only to discover, no, another dead end. It can get very frustrating. It can get discouraging. Sometimes people even have to be rescued and guided out of those corn mazes because they are hopelessly turned around and frustrated. They begin to wonder if that devilish farmer created a maze with no way out. Now, church family, by way of illustration, those might be the feelings today of our man Solomon, frustrated and really discouraged as we join him in Ecclesiastes 6 this morning, feeling like he's stuck in a maze called life, unable to find a meaningful, purpose-filled, sense-making, satisfying way out of that maze. If you've not been with us before, or maybe you're visiting us for the first time today, and we're glad that that would be true if that's you. If you've not been with us, we have been studying one of the most amazing and at the same time most misunderstood books of the Bible, this book called Ecclesiastes. In it, the writer, King Solomon, takes his incredible intellect and his wisdom, his amazing powers of observation, and his virtually limitless material resources, and he embarks on a no-holds-barred search for a life that will be filled with meaning and purpose and deep satisfaction. 
And he conducts this search where, church? Under the sun. Is there anything available in this world under the sun, just this world, that will truly satisfy the longings of the human heart? Just this world. No God included in it. Just life under the sun. Nothing beyond this life. Is there a meaningful, satisfying, purpose-filled life to be found in a closed, non-transcendent, non-God universe? No. Solomon desperately tries to find a satisfying life in a variety of different places. He goes down a number of paths in this maze called life. He looks at nature. He looks at acquiring great knowledge as if that will bring him satisfaction. He turns to a life of being a partying playboy for a while to see if maybe that's where a meaningful life will be found. He turns to wisdom, thinking maybe wisdom holds the, the, the key to a satisfying life. Then he turns to work and vocation and accomplishing great things. That doesn't work. Maybe wealth acquisition. Get as much as you can as fast as you can. Does this fulfill? Will this satisfy? Does this give life meaning and will it make me happy? In each case, the answer, as you just said, is the same. No, no, and no. Solomon says, I still feel empty. Even though I've gone down all of these paths, life under the sun is vanity. He continually says. That's his word for meaningless. There's nothing really to it, he says. Life under the sun only is like chasing after the wind. It's pointless. Now, we've walked this journey with Solomon for five chapters. Today, we step into chapter six. And in this chapter, the disillusionment of Solomon becomes as strong and as clear as it has been in any place up to this point in the book. Chapter 6 is a powerful picture of a person battling life's under-the-sun disillusionment. And we get to see that and walk with Solomon through it. And it won't be all that pleasant at parts. I'll just tell you in advance. Disillusionment, though. Let's start with this. What, what is disillusionment? I'm glad you asked that question because I can provide you with the answer. To be disillusioned is to think something should be one way only to find out it's quite another way. To be in a corn maze thinking that you are on the right path, the only one that will get you out only to discover that it's a dead end. Disillusionment. If something is negatively different from what we expected it to be, we call that disillusionment. If something is positively different from what we expected, well, we call that a pleasant surprise, right? That's a pleasant surprise. We like that, but disillusionment is not that. It is not a good thing, and much of life under the sun only is accompanied by disillusionment. It's often not what we thought it would be. Now, as the title on your little note page would declare, there is hope for a disillusioned life. And we're going to get there today, brothers and sisters, but we do have to go by way of chapter 6, 
which means it's going to get a little bit dark before it gets light. But it will get light. I promise you it's going to get light before we're done. But let's step into chapter 6 and see what the Lord has for us this morning together. Verse 1, Ecclesiastes 6. Solomon writes in his diary, There is an evil that I have seen where, church? Under the sun on this purely horizontal plane. There's this evil under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires and yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So Solomon returns once more to the theme that has driven him for five chapters. Only here, church family, he adds a twist that we've not actually heard before. In all those other instances where Solomon was looking for a meaningful life in all these places that we just recounted, He found meaninglessness because God was left out of the search. Now Solomon says that he has seen times when God has blessed a person with riches and wealth and honor and prestige. And then from Solomon's perspective, God has not allowed those things to bring pleasure and fulfillment. God gives someone successes, but removes from them the fulfillment that those things are thought to bring. It's like a cruel irony. It's it's an unfair twist, a dead-end path in the maze, or so it appears to Solomon, and disillusionment sets in. In fact, Solomon really gets into this as he lets his pen fly, and he writes in verse 3, If a man fathers a hundred children... And lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And he also has no burial. In other words, he doesn't get a decent burial out of the deal. I say that a stillborn child, a child born dead from the womb is better off than he. Wow. Solomon's in a pretty dark place, isn't he? Why would you say that, Solomon? Well, the the stillborn child, it comes in vanity. It comes without meaning. It has not accomplished anything. It hasn't done anything or acquired anything. It doesn't possess anything. And it goes in darkness. And in darkness, its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, and yet it finds rest rather than this other fellow even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to one place. The successful and the stillborn, they both die. Solomon speaks to three conditions that are believed necessary to have a happy life in his time, and I would say in our time as well. Wealth and many children, and longevity. If you get to have those three things in your life, you're going to have a fulfilling, meaningful life, it is believed. In fact, Solomon takes this to the extreme. A man who has lots of material wealth, but he also gets to live for 2,000 years, and he has 100 kids. Okay? So he's taking this way, way out there. But 
not permitted to enjoy any of it? That's vanity. That's meaningless. That's disillusioning. Doesn't the stillborn child have the advantage? It has died without all the frustration, without all the disappointment that the successful person is endured by not being permitted to enjoy his success. Isn't it better off? Solomon is struggling. He's really struggling in this moment. Back in verse 2, he says, a stranger, maybe your version says a foreigner, has come in and snatched away the enjoyment that should be there. Solomon never says what the stranger is, but something comes in just when the successful man who has wealth, possessions, and honor, and and kids, and a long life should be drinking in the enjoyment of all of those things. A stranger comes in and rips him off. And the stranger is being permitted by God, says Solomon. Now, maybe the stranger is sickness. The prosperous man once enjoyed great health and And now a stranger has attacked his body and he can no longer enjoy the delights of this life because he's sick. Or maybe the stranger is domestic conflict. There's nothing like trouble at home to rob you of the joy of your your life. When the stranger comes, joy exits. Maybe the stranger is a natural calamity. We're getting used to those around here. Everything from earthquakes to floods to fires to mudslides. Other places it's tornadoes or hurricanes or killer cold. These may rip off the successful person and take the joy that Solomon thinks should be theirs. The presence of the stranger often causes people to think, what kind of a God is God anyway? What kind of a God is he? One man who came to a rather extreme but popular conclusion when the stranger invaded his life was a guy named Harold Kushner. He was a Jewish rabbi, and he wrote a book that became a number one bestseller, immensely popular, called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. You ever heard of that book? I don't know if you've read that book or not. But When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and he writes these words in his book. He says, Life is not fair, we would all say. True, yeah, it's not. The wrong people get sick, and the wrong people get robbed, and the wrong people get killed in wars and in accidents. Some people see life's unfairness, and they decide there is no God. The world is nothing but chaos. But Kushner, when the stranger comes into his life, he comes to another conclusion. And so he writes a bit later in his book, Are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that he's not perfect? We swallow hard and we say, what? What did you just say? That's not true. But you see, he's he's writing from the perspective of a grieving father. He writes his book upon the death of his son. A stranger came and robbed him and it leads him to this disillusioned conclusion about the nature of God. God isn't perfect. Can you forgive him and love him anyway? In fact, here's what Kushner goes on to say. He says, 
even when he has let you down and disappointed, disappointed you by permitting bad luck and sickness and cruelty in his world and permitting some of those things to happen to you, can you learn to love and forgive him despite his limitations? Whoa, those are blasphemous words, are they not? Yes, they are. But such thoughts, they press in when the stranger is at your door. Solomon says that a stillborn child is better off than the guy who was blessed in this life with wealth and years and children, and then he's not allowed to enjoy them. Disillusioned by the success not enjoyed. Well, that's Solomon. In these opening verses. But Solomon's not done because he next expresses his disillusionment with desires in one's life that go unfulfilled. Verses 7, 8, and 9. Check this out. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is what? It's not satisfied. It's not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity, meaningless, and a striving after wind. What could be more, more senseless than chasing after the wind? Those are hard words disillusionment with desires that aren't fulfilled, that aren't realized. Out of the ancient Greek mythology comes the story of Tantalus. Perhaps you know his story. I'll give you the short version. Tantalus was an associate of the Greek gods. He did some bad things, and so he was banished to the underworld, and his punishment was to stand in a pool of water beneath the branches of a fruit tree. The branches of the tree were filled with this wonderful, luscious, succulent fruit, but the fruit was just out of his reach. No matter how hard he strained, he just couldn't reach the fruit. And what's more, the water around him would immediately begin to recede the moment that he tried to take a drink. Tantalus. It's from his name that we get the English word tantalize, right? Just out of reach. Deeply desired, but you just can't have it. It leaves us always longing and reaching, but never satisfied. So in verse 7, Solomon says, All the toil of man is for his mouth, his appetite, and yet his appetite isn't satisfied. And that's just a word picture for much more than food issues. It's a much bigger thought here than that. For Solomon, this represents a vicious and cruel cycle. A man's hunger, his desires drive him to work. Work provides him with the food. Food feeds his appetite, but only for so long. And then the hunger leads him to more work. More work leads to food. Food, work, eat, hunger. Food, work, eat, hunger, Desires never fully satisfied. Vicious cycle. All our labor is for our desires, but our desires are insatiable and require more labor. It's like the hamster on the wheel, constantly running and getting nowhere, right? 
You ever feel that way? You ever feel like that? Insatiable desires? You're never, never really satisfied? We all have those. I think of moms with small kids. Do you ever feel this way, mom? You're putting the toys away at the end of the day. The kids have gone down to bed, and you're putting all the toys away. And as you put the toys away, the thought occurs to you, the moment they get up, it's going to look just like this again and again and again. (laughs) Why do I keep doing this? In verse 9, Better is the, is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. And that's a kind of a weird phrase. We don't, what does that mean? Well, it means something if you understand that this is a Hebrew idiom that essentially means just grab whatever you can get while you can get it. Don't assume that something better is coming. Grab what's right there because you don't know if anything else good is going to come. Grab it. Well, that's some under-the-sun advice, I think. And for a disillusioned Solomon in this moment, it's all just vanity anyway. It's all meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. And we ask, is he done yet? Is he done? <laughs> well, not, not just yet. He still needs to vent about his disillusionment over life's uncertainties. And there's, that's the third thing on your note page there on the front. And he'll do this in verses 10, 11, and 12. And so, so we're close to being done with, with him doing this thing of, of venting, but let's, let's get there. Disillusioned by life's uncertainties. Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he in other words, there's stuff out of my control, right? Lots of stuff out of my control. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage is this to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him? Where, church? Under the sun. What Solomon says here essentially is that the way the world is is beyond our ability to influence or change in any significant difference-making kind of a way. What, What takes him three verses to say, we would say today this way. It is what it is, right? It is what it is. We've all said that, right? We say that frequently, I think. And the one who has made it this way is far stronger than us, Solomon says. All we can do is talk, verse 11. But all our words are vanity and don't really change anything. You know, when I read the words in verse 11, the more words, the more vanity, the more meaninglessness. I think of all the chatter, all the chatter that goes on in our country every day among the politicians and the policymakers. Tons and tons of words, a seemingly endless stream of promises to change or to control or to improve. But Solomon observes that puny, finite man really changes nothing, nothing, essentially, in the world. We live and our lives pass, he says, like a shadow. Like Tantalus's fruit that hangs just out of reach, so too our ability to reach out and control. What will happen 
in the next five minutes to say nothing of the next 24 hours or the next year. We're just not in control. And it, it really is disillusioning. We have no control. I, I, I find myself, the, the older I get, I find myself oftentimes these days thinking about my kids, thinking about our grandkids, wondering what lies in their future. What will they experience? What will they see? What will they have to live through? What will happen to my children and my grandchildren? As much as I would like to know that and to control that so that I can protect them, I can't do really much of anything. It's all very uncertain. I don't like that. You don't like that. But that's the way it is. Material success not enjoyed in life, that's disillusioning. Desires unfulfilled, well, that's disillusioning. Uncertainties and unknowns, well, that's disillusioning. And you say, Tim, I thought this was a message about hope for the disillusioned life. It is. It is, church. If you flip your note page over, we're done with chapter 6. Woohoo! <laughs> but we did have to pass with Solomon through Ecclesiastes 6 to get where we really want to go today. It was necessary to read his diary in order to paint this dark backdrop so that the light of biblical truth can shine all the brighter. So I appreciate you kind of just enduring that and walking through that with me. Now, I opened our time by asking you to consider with me an Iowa corn maze with all of its intricate paths cut into the cornfield. Some paths going this way, some paths going that way. The goal is to get through the maze, and there's only one right way to get through the maze. Every other path is going to turn out to be a dead-end path. Ecclesiastes 6 is depressing, like a corn maze with no apparent way out. People set out on paths. They, they choose paths that they think will lead to happiness and fulfillment and satisfaction and meaning and purpose and joy. But they keep running into these dead ends. And each dead end creates more disillusionment. Wealth. No. It isn't making me happy. It isn't fulfilling my life. Success. No. It's not. I thought it would, but it doesn't. Honor from my peers. I thought that would really be satisfying and fulfilling. But you know what? Something is still missing. And so we reach and we search and we, we grind away and, and we work to try to satisfy desires that well, they're, they're, they're never fully satisfied. And we try hard and we work harder, but we're still not satisfied. Our soul wants something, but it's always just out of reach. And then, and then throw in a lack of control into all of that. Never really able to dispute with the one who is stronger than us. And all of this leads to dead ends. Why? You want to know why, church family? Here's the reason why. Because God is the master corn maze designer. That's the why. He purposely, listen carefully, 
He purposely dead ends every pursuit in this life under the sun, every pursuit for meaning and satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and happiness, if that pursuit does not include him. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I hear the amens. He is the master life maze designer. Every pursuit in this life that does not include him is a dead-end pursuit. And this, this is not God being mean or, or cruel or uncaring or unloving. It's God being the very opposite of that. He is being very loving. He is letting us see that only in him are we going to find what we really want, what we really are looking for. This is love. God uses life's disillusionment to set us onto the one path that will take us to the one place, to the one person who will provide lasting joy and satisfaction in this life and genuine hope for the life to come. Amen? Romans 15, 13, there at the top of your page, puts it this way, about as clearly and concisely as we could ever hope to find it, This is the answer to Ecclesiastes 6. May the God of hope fill you with all what, church? Joy and peace as you trust in Him, as you include Him in your life so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now that is too good for me just to share with you and read it to you. Let's let's do it off the screen together. As a church family, let's read it out loud. Ready? Together. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. The God of hope. What a beautiful name. The God of hope that that speaks to every Every disillusion-creating place that we could ever encounter, He is the God of hope for all those places. Fill you with all joy and peace. Fill us with the meaning and the purpose and the satisfaction that our souls are longing for. Trust in Him, committing ourselves, our whole selves, body and soul, in complete reliance upon Him, giving complete allegiance to Him, and living completely for Him. That's trusting Him. So that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This verse is the very opposite of hopeless disillusionment. Do you know why? Do you know what Romans 13, 15, 13 is really saying? It's saying that the master maze designer made only one path that does not lead to disillusionment and despair in this life. There's only one path that leads to what we really long for, and his name is Jesus. Amen. It was Jesus himself who put it like this. Do not... Let your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be anxious. Don't let them be discouraged. Don't let them be disillusioned. Trust in God. Trust also in me. I am the way and the truth and the 
life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus says, when you're done trying all the dead-end paths to a meaningful, hope-filled life, when you've tried all those places and you've, you've come up empty, turn to me. Trust me. I am God, just like the Father is God, and you can trust me. I know the way. I know the right path. In fact, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Through a simple childlike faith in trust in Jesus, we step onto this path that Jesus has made for us. We believe that Jesus paid the sin debt that we all owe to God. We believe that he died in our place and that God accepts his sacrifice on our behalf. We believe that death and the grave could not hold the one who is life and that he rose from the dead, the conqueror of the grave, liberating us from sin's power and its claims upon us. And in this place of trust, we overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit who is given to us upon belief in Jesus. And it is this power, this Holy Spirit power that enables us to trust God then with all these other things that Solomon was lamenting in chapter 6. We can trust him with our material and physical possessions, can't we? Once we've trusted Jesus with our eternity, can we not trust him with our material possessions? Matthew six nineteen to 21, Jesus put it this way. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I mean, Jesus speaks to the very same disillusion-creating strangers that Solomon cried out about in verse 2 of chapter 6. How unfair, how disappointing that a person's wealth is taken from him and he has no joy in it. Jesus counters and he says in verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures where, church? Treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. That's where your heart is. That's where your joy and fulfillment are going to be. If Jesus is our first love and and the values of the Father are our values, we can trust them to care for us materially. We can trust the Father and the Son to care for us. They know exactly what we need and what we don't need. Right? And as well, there on your note page, if we are truly trusting God and our hope is in Him, we can trust Him with all of our desires. One of the great verses in the Bible, Psalm Psalm 37, verse 4, Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you what? The desires of your heart. What a wonderful promise. Solomon lamented that life under the sun held a slew of unfulfilled desires. A man toils but is never satisfied, he said in verse 7. But if our trust is truly in God, he promises to give us the desires of our heart. And the cool thing about that is that it doesn't mean he's going to fulfill our wish list of earthly desires for wealth and possessions and honor and many children and a long life. All the things that the world says are what makes us fulfilled and happy. That's not what verse 4 is saying. This verse is telling us that when our delight is in God, our relationship with him through faith in Jesus, he's where our happiness and joy are centered, then his desires become what? Our desires. 
That's what this verse is saying. What He loves is what we come to love and what He wants is what we want to be first in our life and more than anything else. When Jesus owns our heart, we can trust Him with our desires because His desires become our desires. And then for that third place that Solomon spoke of with such a disillusioned frustration, life's uncertainties, when the God of hope is our trust, we can give him all of those uncertainties and know that his joy and his peace will be given to us. The Holy Spirit gives us this promise. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. You know these words. Do not be anxious about what, church? Anything. Does that cover it? That pretty much covers it. Do not be worried. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We know these verses. We memorize these verses. Do we know what they're really saying to us? The Holy Spirit says, bring all of your uncertainty." All of it, every bit of it, all the places where fear and worry and anxiety are trying to ambush you, bring all of that to your heavenly father in humble, trusting prayer, lay it at his feet, let him have all of that uncertainty. And the promise is that God will replace the anxiety, the uncertainty with a peace that is not even possible to explain in human terms. And he will post that peace as a guard over your heart and mind. New Testament writer James almost sounds like he might have been reading Ecclesiastes 6 before he wrote the words of James chapter 4. Solomon laments tomorrow's uncertainties, but here's what James writes. Verse 13. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What's that a statement about? Life's uncertainties, right? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James says, trust God. And yield your plans to him. Ready to rest in him if he, in his sovereignty and his perfect love, chooses to alter your plans and take you where you never thought you'd go. You're going to trust him anyway. You're going to trust him anyway. Our God, brothers and sisters, our God is the master life maze designer. And he has made it so that every path that does not include him will eventually lead to disillusionment, forcing us to him. Those paths will prove empty, futile, meaningless, chasing after wind, just like Solomon says. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding in all your ways. 
Acknowledge him. Include him in your life. And he will what? He'll make straight your paths. Your paths. The God of hope will lead us out of the maze and straight to the person of Jesus where disillusionment is transformed into an overflowing hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Hope for a disillusioned life. Let's pray together. Well, we have that hope, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit. We have that hope because you have given it to us. Lord Jesus, you have made it possible through faith in you Holy Spirit, you have given us that grace and faith to be able to believe. And Father, you have loved us. You have loved us onto the right path, the only path that leads to life and meaning and a fulfilling, purpose-filled existence. What can we say to you but thank you? Thank you, thank you, thank you for Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for giving us not a disillusioned life, but a hope-filled life. We enjoy it now. We will enjoy it forever through you. We love you, Lord, but only because you loved us first. And all of your people said, Amen and Amen.